welcome to the very first episode of the Hoover Institution's new podcast on China and Asia. Exact title to be named later. So I'm John Yu, and I'm joined here by Misha Oslin, uh, both Hoover Fellows. And I thought since we are having our very first episode, we ought to explain a little bit about who we are and why we're getting together to do this podcast. So, Misha, why don't you introduce yourself and explain a little bit about your background and then why you're, uh, we're putting this podcast together? Sure, John. Well, uh, I am a uh, PhD in history, uh, Japanese history, and more broadly Asian history, and have been working on various aspects of the U.S. and Asia, Asian international history, uh, cultural history, uh, political history and the like for about 25 years now. Uh, it's I wrote a biweekly column for the Wall Street Journal on Asia for about half a decade or so and still regularly uh, give uh, input and, and um, commentary on the key events that are happening in Asia to a variety of, of outlets, including uh, the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, National Review, uh, and the like. Um, what I found in those 25 years, though, is that for those of us in the field, we are continually surprised by how little folks on the outside think about Asia or know about Asia. We think everyone does. We think it's the most important thing in the world. Uh, and yet constantly, and especially in Washington, D.C., it's very hard to get people to, to really pay attention. So I'm hoping that the podcast is going to be one way to have <clears> – <throat> pardon me – to have an approach where um, we can be topical and conversational and maybe get people to understand just why Asia is so important in their life. Now, he goes professionally by Mike Lawson, but everybody who knows him at AEI and Hoover loves him and calls Misha. So for the rest of the podcast, I'm going to refer to him as Misha. Well, you sound like an expert. I, on the other hand, am doing this podcast uh, because I am Asian. <laughs> so I thought that would be a good reason to have a podcast on Asia. <laughs> In all seriousness, I'm a professor at Berkeley and a, a visiting fellow over at uh, Hoover along with Misha and a bunch of other people who are studying Asia. And uh, I started out as a, a legal scholar interested about presidential power and war, uh, foreign affairs. And it's a, sort of, you're, you're the specialist. I started out, I guess, as a generalist, but – I think it's undeniable that uh, this upcoming century, the gravity of the world is moving to Asia and that our – to me anyway, our most significant uh, competitors, rivals, or even allies are going to be the major Asian countries. And so I've become much more uh, interested in it. And if I have any questions, if I ask you and you don't know the answer, then I just call my parents and they know the answer <laughs> or my brother or the other Asians I know. <laughs> so I thought, uh, you know, you and I, we've been friends for a long time and we've talked about our common interests. And a lot of times we have different views on what's going on with China and Asia. So I thought and you thought it would be a great uh, idea to have a po do a podcast. We could share some of our thoughts and expertise with people who are listening, who are, as you say, people who uh, – probably are beginning to see now in this administration more than ever how much China and Asia is impacting their daily lives and may not have thought about it that carefully or deeply before. So, Absolutely. I think, uh, I think the time is right in terms of uh, what's going on with the administration. And, and I think the key part, and you know, being a fellow here at Hoover, which is on, on the Pacific coast, it's a very different mindset from D.C., but is that we don't want to get caught by surprise 
with what's going to be happening uh, with the rest of the Trump administration, be it the trade war with China, nuclear negotiations with Korea, uh, the threat of a, of a true uh, diplomatic breakdown between Japan and Korea and the like. I mean, this is really this is this is an insurance policy, I think, to, to mm-hmm. try to get people to get a little bit ahead of the news. So we're not simply reactive when it comes to half the world. Mm, that's a really great point. I, I do agree. I think the perspective from here on the West Coast, from Berkeley and uh, Palo Alto towards Asia is very different. We are on the Pacific. We are part of the uh, Asian region. Uh, in a way, I think people in uh, Washington, D.C. may not be there too far away. Plus, uh, you know, I just don't think it's possible to understand Asia if you can't get any good Asian food. And no one in Washington, D.C. can get their hands on any good Asian food compared to out here. Anyway, let's start. Let's start on. So we've uh, selected a few topics. Again, I think uh, every time we do a podcast, so much is going on with Asia, with the United States, with the administration, that we're never going to have a shortage of topics. But uh, I think we're going to start. The first uh, topic is going to be uh, the upcoming summit between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea, which just recently was announced will be taking place in Vietnam at the end of February. So, uh, Misha, a lot of people criticized the first summit last year that took place in Singapore as a lot lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Uh, Well, President Trump and Kim Jong-un came out of it with a fancy communique. Uh, A lot of critics said nothing really happened. Uh, What do you think of that? Do you think that's a fair criticism? And do you think the second summit is just going to be more of the same, more – uh, hugging, more uh, exaggeration, but no real change in policy by the United States or North Korea. Yeah, John, I think that um, you know if you if you have to give the the Trump administration uh, sympathy in in one area, it would be on North Korea because they inherited a failed policy. I mean, look, nothing had worked. They came in after three U.S. administrations that were both Democratic and Republican had tried to cut this Gordian knot, and all of them had failed. And not only had failed, but quite frankly, at the end of their attempts, we wound up with the very thing that all of them promised us we wouldn't have, which was a nuclear North Korea. And a nuclear North Korea, perhaps more importantly, that could hit the U.S. with an intercontinental ballistic missile. So from the one hand, you have to look at the Trump people and say, look, they they got an incredibly bad hand that, that they had to play. So what were they going to do? They could have gone the Obama route and done nothing essentially for eight years. They could have gone the Bush route and tried to get this big multilateral um, multilateral set of negotiations going, uh, which also didn't get us to where we wanted to be, or they could have tried something new, and they opted to try something new. And the new was that that uh, thanks to the South Koreans and really in a process that was pushed by South Koreans, Trump met with Kim Jong Un, the leader of North Korea. That's never happened before. Um, I, I was very skeptical. Um, I think a lot of people were were very skeptical. But you also have to recognize that really there were very few other options other than going back and trying the same thing that had failed before. And there's a logic to it. I mean, you could say that. Look, the only way to get any agreement potentially even to stick is if you get the leader's name on it. Right? He has to be personally invested. So it's a it's a strategy and it's a negotiating tactic. Um, I don't think anyone expected this to be a Reykjavik moment where suddenly there was going to be a, a potential solution to the entire problem put forward in Singapore last year. 
instead, it was to see, is there any chance that you can find some common ground? And at best, at best, I think the, the record was mixed. Uh, and what I mean by that is we got no agreement. Nothing material was accomplished. And yet on the same time, they're at the same hand, uh, the the Trump administration created this new dynamic, and the new dynamic was that Trump is going to be meeting with Kim Jong Un. Um, I still think that the odds of getting a nuclear, a denuclear, denuclearized North Korea, right, a North Korea, a North Korea that yeah. gives up its nuclear weapons, is incredibly small. Uh, it yeah, isn't the everything the there? Isn't the isn't the lesson that you've seen uh, in Iraq, Libya? And Iran, perhaps, is if you're a dictator, never give up your nuclear weapons. And what could the U.S. Uh, actually offer North Korea to ever get the regime to denuclearize? Well, they've offered it. They've, they've said we are taking regime change off the table. Now, if you know, if I'm the North Koreans, I'm probably not going to believe that, quite frankly. But this administration has gone as far as any in saying, look, we're, we're all we care about is getting you denuked, right? Mm-hmm. We just we want the nukes gone, and we're not going to try to change the regime. Now, the, I think the reality is the only way you're going to be sure of getting rid of nukes is when the regime changes. I mean, mm-hmm. the, this this is the regime that created the nukes. So, mm-hmm. the idea that you're suddenly going to um, convince them that they're not going to be at risk when they saw, as you mentioned, what happened to Saddam Hussein and they saw what happened to Muammar Gaddafi is probably a lot lower than it was mm-hmm. before. On the other hand, it, it also didn't work before. So, um, I, I think I think the odds are very low. But as Americans, and I think again, this is a diplomatic predilection that is shared across the aisle. We believe in negotiation. You know, it was Bill Clinton in 1994 who had the option of launching a military strike against North Korea's then nascent nuclear facilities, uh, and they pulled back from it and said, "No, we're going to go the diplomatic route." And mm-hmm. and that was a completely legitimate approach to take at the time. Um, We now know that it failed. And if you had done what the Israelis did in Iraq, for example, in Osirak back in the Mm -hmm. 80s, you would have knocked out that capability at least for a number of years. But more importantly, you would have essentially set the precedent of saying, if you continue down this path, we are going to continue to, to strike you in some way or another. And we've never done that. So the North Koreans have had decades Hmm. essentially to use negotiations to give cover to build nuclear weapons. That's the world we're in. Well, a few thoughts. One is this is yet another thing we can lay at the feet of Jimmy Carter. Because remember in those meetings where you're referring to where the Clinton administration considered launching those strikes, uh, Jimmy Carter suddenly made an appearance and claimed and had gone and claimed that he had a peace solution and was the one who apparently, you look at these reports, pushed uh, President Clinton into uh, negotiations and away from a strike. Second point, I was just, uh, I just thought uh, I'd make a response to your point is, uh, yeah, if you're the uh, Kim administration, you may have very little reason to trust the United States to believe any promises. Um, but there is one example that doesn't get talked about much, I think, but is an example where the United States made a promise we would not try to engage in regime change, and that would be Cuba. To think about the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know, people argue about how clear this deal was. But it seems now that you look back on it, the Kennedy administration, administrations after, made a deal to the Soviet: don't station nuclear weapons in Cuba, and we will never try to invade the island again. And that's been a stable deal. We kept our word, and if anything, that's turned out pretty good 
for the Cuban regime in the long run. They have you know fairly open trade with Western Europe and Canada and Latin America, if not with us. And we have you know left the island alone militarily. So maybe Kim could look at that example and say, you know, the United States does keep its word when they promise not to engage in regime change. We don't promise it all that often, though. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting point, and I'll be honest, one that I've not heard people in the Asia community talk about, uh, probably because they don't, you know, they don't think, uh, you know, much beyond, you know, the, the, the limits of Asia in terms of the historical experiences that they're, that they're considering, but it, but it, it goes to this question of the credibility, right? And certainly what people in the States were criticizing about uh, about Trump trying to make a deal with Kim Jong Un was to say, well, why would Kim Jong Un believe Trump when Trump always changes his words, right? When he, okay. you can't trust anything uh, he's saying. But for the North Koreans, they've believed that about the Americans for a very long time, right? Because you, everything, <laughs> yeah, you know, we've 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 heard, even though the Americans have have been completely reticent, by the way to respond to any North Korean provocation. I mean, you can go back into yes. the 70s, right, when two American GIs were hacked to death by yes. North Korean soldiers. We did nothing when they sunk a South Korean ship. Well, we did nothing with our South Korean allies. I mean, there's been an enormous amount of of uh, hesitancy on the part of the United States to do anything to actually undermine the regime. And so if I were the North Koreans, I'd probably take the record of our action more than I would have taken the record of rhetoric. Uh, but it is, it's an interesting point. You're, you know, could we make a promise and say to them, well, look, you know, look at Cuba and, and see what we, what we did there. Um, yeah, Kim Jong-un, you could be the next Fidel Castro. You could, yeah, if, if you're lucky, if you play your yeah, card, if you're lucky, right, you can be right, Fidel right. Castro. <laughs> and your brother can be president too someday. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's uh, turn away from uh, the Trump Kim summit and talk about yet another summit. Seems like Trump just has summit after summit. Uh, this one hasn't. The date has not been set yet, uh, and this would be the summit between President Trump and the President of China. And the the news as it is now is that representatives of each regime are fiercely meeting now to try to make some kind of breakthrough on a trade deal. Uh, if they don't. President Trump has said that on March 1st, uh, he's going to automatically increase sanctions on all Chinese uh, exports to the United States, although he just recently said I might let it slip a week or two if they're making progress. And then there's this – both sides talk about, well, you're going to have to bring Trump and President Xi Jinping together to sign the final deal. Um, again, with the with the Trump-Kim summit, uh, Misha, do you think – that there's really much opportunity for a deal. If there is, what do you think it would look like? And and I think again, is it going? Is the Trump administration going to be subject to the criticism of a lot of sound and fury? Nothing much has changed. Well, I think I think they're always going to be subject to that criticism. I think here there's enormous pressure on Trump to make a deal. Um, I think there's I think there's more pressure on on Xi Jinping actually, but for Trump. Oh. I think there's enormous pressure to make a deal uh, because of uh, – first of all, you've, the midterms are over. They lost seats in the House. You're starting again in the 2020 cycle. Clearly, American businesses are hurting from uh, the, the, the tariffs and the trade war. That's only going to continue. 
Um, the longer it drags on, you know, purists, uh, and I certainly am one who believe that, you know, we need to do something to um, change the balance that we've had with China because it has been an unfair balance. But, um, you know, the purists will say, well, you know, you got to you got to stick at it. But there's going to be an, an enormous number of people who are going to be saying, uh, you know, this this has dragged on now for two or three years and you're not getting anywhere. That said, though, I think the, the greater pressure is on, on Xi Jinping. Um, China's economy is less able to withstand a prolonged trade war with the U.S. Uh, obviously, they've already run out of tools to try to counter the tariffs that Trump has put on products because you know of the, of the trade imbalance. China's economy is undergoing, continuing to undergo a significant macroeconomic slowdown. Um, these are all things that um, – that are mitigating against uh, Xi being able to maintain this hard line indefinitely. And and the risk for him, too, is that the longer this goes on, the more it's laid at his doorstep. Uh, and, and you actually hear little echoes of this when you when you talk uh, to Chinese uh, interlocutors or you, um, you know, you dig down into what's what's out there on the Internet. I mean, there are criticisms of Xi Jinping. Uh, now they're wrapped up with lots of other things that he's doing at home that people don't like. But, you know, the, the pressure on him is is that um, he's the one who got us into this. You know, uh, he was not able to deal with Trump effectively, uh, despite all the blandishment. And Trump actually wound up levying the the sanctions or, or the uh, the tariffs and is going to going to levy more. So that raises your question of what does it look like? Right? Let me pause you. Let me pause you there. I think just to throw in uh, some points. I th- I agree with you. I think there's a lot of pressure on Trump. Because of the cycle of American politics, that if you want to have the – first of all, every president, their main goal in life is to get reelected. Trump, I think, even more so than most because I think he does – he wants to prove that his election wasn't a fluke. So he uh, – if you uh, look at, um, for example, things like uh, how long does it take a cut in interest rates to actually have an effect in the economy, if Trump wants the economy booming by the summer of 2020 – Right before the elections, he needs a some kind of deal, you know. Now he needs, you know, he needs to get the economy starting up uh, to benefit from any reduction in tariffs, and you know, benefiting from the investment that'll occur if trade tensions get reduced. He needs that to happen very soon in order to flow through the economy and take effect. And still be going on by a time of election. So I totally agree with you that he. I'm very interested. I'm very surprised you say that. Uh, uh, President Xi needs it even even more. So, he, well, why do you think that uh, he's getting a lot of this pressure? You know, in the in the American press, we have this image of oh, he's just the total the totalitarian leader of China who brooks no resistance, and what he says goes, and there is no criticism or resistance to him within Chinese society or their government. So he would suffer nothing if. You know the Chinese economy takes a turn for the worse. They can they can wait us out. You you find that to be uh, uh, a little bit off. Why why why? Again, I think it's the overall yeah. weakness of the Chinese economy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there is it's a combination of what's happening as the the economy matures, uh, as it begins to be weighted down by bad policy decisions uh, for decades, including, for example, the one-child policy, which means that China is basically undergoing a labor shortage right now, uh, which is 
driving up uh, driving up labor costs and and making Chinese uh, goods less affordable. Um, uh, the question of uh, actual innovation, how much are they innovating, uh, how well are they keeping up with leading trends? You'll you'll read that they're the AI giant, uh, but if that's the case, then why are they still sending so many of their students here to study right. uh, advanced technology because we're, we're still much better? So there's a lot of things going on on the economic side, and I think it's combined with what's going on on the political side. People are actually uncomfortable with the amount of power that Xi Jinping has uh, accumulated to himself. Um, they really do feel that this is a this is too much of the shades of, of getting near the, the Mao era, where you know it's it's uh, almost a cult of personality, and um, they uh, they they he, he's been very successful in neutralizing alternative centers of power, um, but at the same time. That doesn't mean that that they've disappeared. And uh, as I mentioned before, you do there is criticism of him. Some of it's more oblique. Uh, you know, it's it's not always uh, direct. But the point is that his position is. It, I think we should at least be considering that he's in a less secure position than it might appear. Uh, you know, it appears that he holds all the cards. But but you know the. The reason that China's been so stable and successful, one of the reasons it's been so stable and successful over the past um, 30, 40 years uh, since the death of Mao is because of this largely collective leadership model. And mm. that is what Xi Jinping threatens. And so uh, the idea that all of these other very powerful, very ambitious uh, – very Let's try to do things that make their government less – let's hurt the economy – uh, you know that. Uh, you know, why not push our advantage? You know, if there is an event, if they need it more than we do, and actually not reach any trade deal, and encourage other countries to, like, especially the European Union, but also our Asian allies like Japan and South Korea. Let's try to uh, cut China down to size a little bit, and maybe the best thing to do is not to to walk away from a trade deal and try to create a kind of anti-China economic coalition. You you, you hear that and you see that in the ranks. Do you think that's uh, impractical because of the need of uh, President Trump for the ele- you know because of the electoral process here to get a win, as you say. Well, look first. I, I think you have to step back and say why are we at this point at all? Uh, and the reason we're at this point is because China's taken advantage of us and taken advantage of the system that we created to put it into the um, the international global trading and political networks that we created uh, after World War II. Um, now, there's obviously been benefits. Uh, w- one benefit is that you have a China that's more integrated with the world. Uh, another benefit is that, uh, you know, American consumer prices have been lower. Um, there's been a lot of money made off of China. But the fact of the matter is that um, the balance, uh, the, the perception is now that the balance of that trade has been detrimental to the United States. Uh, it's it's not only the lost jobs and the hollowing out of American industries, it's the theft of intellectual property. It is the, um, uh, the forced transfer, the involuntary, the voluntary transfer of intellectual property, all of it. Uh, it is the crushing of uh, competition within um, uh, a uh, you know any given sector because the Chinese can have been able to bring to bear such lower labor costs and they undercut uh, all competitors. It's the role of the state-owned sector. All of these things that we thought would ultimately 
be solved in some way, that that China would begin to norm itself, would begin to act like other countries have not been. And so that's why we're in this position. So the the part of the I'm very sympathetic to part of the argument that, yeah, it's time to it's time to change that dynamic. It's time. I don't know if you want to use the word strike back, but however you want to use it, the point is enough is enough. Um, and so we should be pressuring China and it's right to do it. I mean, I'll tell you in DC, a lot of people won't admit it openly, but people have been waiting for a long time for some president to take the bit between his teeth and, and actually try to resolve some of these issues. Uh, I mean, look, it was the Democrats who were pushing for tariffs a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trump's USTR, his U S trade representative, Robert Lighthizer is a Democrat. Um, right. I mean, essentially he's worked Mm -hmm. with, with, labor groups. And so this is not unpopular uh, inherently. It's not sort of automatically unpopular uh, in D.C. Now, that said, of course, and, you know, the the question of statecraft always is how far do you go, right? Right. You can't can't crush China. You don't want to crush China. You know, a China that fails. I mean, China is the ultimate too big to fail. You know, forget AIG. (laughs) China is... And the yeah. whole the whole point about U.S. China relations for forty years is that U.S. administrations have convinced themselves that it's too big to fail, so they never tried to change it at all. You know, Trump's trying to change it now, but it is too big to fail in the sense that a collapsed China would wreak havoc throughout the world. It'd wreak havoc in production lines and and uh, and equity markets and uh, insurance markets, and you could have massive outflows of, of migrants. I mean, you, you don't want China to fail. And that's actually the greatest fear of the Chinese leadership is that um, is what happens at home. It's not the US, it's not Japan, uh, it's not Russia and things like that. So you do have to figure out how far can you go, you know. But we also, we don't want to be distracted by this kind of Myth, I think. Now, myth is too strong a world. This sort of idealism that uh, past policymakers had before that we, as you mentioned, we created this uh, sort of liberal trading system, liberal small L trading system, political system for the world after, uh, you know, after the war. And we hoped China would become integrated into it and become a kind of normal nation in a way. Like eventually they would might become democratic. Eventually they would play fair. Uh, as they industrialize, and we've gotten the opposite in a way. That's right. I mean, what you have, so first of all, this year is the 40th anniversary of the normalization of U.S.-China relations. Mm. January 1st, 1979. Hey, someone, someone should have a podcast to start a podcast. To Wouldn't that be great? We, we should do the, uh, the normalization <laughs> podcast. That's what we're going to call this. Um, so uh, that's exactly right. What you've had for four decades has been this um, attempt to sort of, on the one hand, willfully ignore what was actually happening in China, uh, while certainly focusing on things that were changing that you wanted to change, right? So China becoming part of the international trading system and the like, but but not being willing to take on uh, many of the problems that were attendant with that. And you think back to the WTO arguments over putting China into the World Trade Organization. And what did Bill yeah. Clinton say? You know, he said, this is going to make China a, a normal nation, right? Yeah. We've, we've heard that not just from him, but over and over. And I think I think where we are, John, today is that, and this is why the, the trade question is just part of a larger question of U.S.-China relations. Um, we're at the end of the first era of U.S. 
PRC relations, right? Relations with the People's Republic of China. From 1949 to 1979, we did not have relations. From 1979 to today, we've had one era of relations, which is this era of integration or what, what you might call the, the engagement consensus. We're now starting a new era. And so that era is very murky. Um, it is, I would say it is agreed to by most policy analysts and policymakers that I know. I mean, there, there are, there are people who don't agree with it. There are people in academia and there are people in think tanks who, who, who think we're doing more or less just fine with China. And, and, you know, we, we don't really have to change course, but I would say the, the majority of people think we do have to change course. And so it's messy because we're in the middle of it right now. I think it's not exactly analogous, but you know, you might look back to, let's say, you know, the period 1943 to 1947 or so, or 1949, as the war is beginning to wind down, it's not over yet, but World War II is beginning to wind down. And they started in Washington and London in particular trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with this eventual post-war world? What's it going to look like? Because the last one failed dramatically, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't certain that you would get any of the things that you had, you know, uh, would there be a United Nations? Was there going to be uh, an alliance system of, of some kind or not? Would the U.S. go home? Now, all of these questions, right? That's where we are with China today. Interesting. Is what does it look like? What is it, what is it going to look like going forward? You want, you don't want China to be isolated from the world. And yet what we do have to say, by the way, I think, is that after 40 years, China today, and this I think is part of the mentality of Xi Jinping and those around him, is more suspicious of the world uh, than than before, than probably a decade ago. Well, for turning to the next topic, just uh, let me throw in another. Sorry, as you said, extra Asian studies or extra China perspective is that if you look at uh, American foreign relations with other countries, we've probably never had uh, – we've never faced another country like this, which was uh, you know, getting close to roughly our size and power, economy, bigger in population, where we have this at the same you – know, so a, a traditional strategic rival, but where we have this kind of economic symbiosis uh, at the same time. And so when we've had these enemies, Japan, Germany – uh, in the past, or even Canada, Mexico, well, like they were real enemies. But when we had them as rivals on the continent, we didn't have this same level of sort of intertwined society, eco- social, economic, cultural ties. Um, the, the, you know, but you know, the thing that maybe the closest analogy from the non-Asian you know, perspective uh, uh, is to me uh, the rise of the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century and our relations with Great Britain, which was you know, the greatest power in the world at the time. And we shared a lot, much deeper ties with England uh, than we do with China now and a lot of common culture. At the same time, we had fought two wars with the British and we had a lot of border disputes and disputes about reach. And so we kind of worked it out and you know, something maybe we should study. But anyway, let me, let's turn to the next topic, uh, which actually follows directly on something you're uh, saying, Misha, which is that one of the big harms we've suffered from China uh, in this kind of period of, uh, you know, sort of hopefulness, uh, I guess, uh, in the way China would act, and as you say, they took advantage of us, is um, the campaign against the Huawei Corporation. As as you know, Huawei is China's great telecommunication equipment manufacturer. Uh, they uh, manufacture. A huge number of smartphones, but their real money-making enterprise is telecommunications equipment. The 
machines that uh, put together and operate the networks that allow us to communicate. And uh, American policymakers have been worried for several years now about the upgrade of all of our communication networks to the 5G system. And Huawei apparently has an advantage in the technology needed to put that system into place. But at the same time, people are a worried about uh, intelligence, Chinese intelligence, having access to all communications because everybody buys Huawei equipment. But then two, uh, the way Huawei got its advantage. So just um, recently, the U.S. Justice Department indicted the company Huawei for stealing trade secrets from American companies like Sprint, for example. And they didn't mention other things that are they've been suspected of doing, uh, but probably, as you've mentioned, theft of trade secrets from a great number of American companies. Uh, also, uh, as much in the news, the daughter of the founder of Huawei was detained in Canada at American request. Uh, and then we later learned that the Justice Department had indicted Huawei again for trying to evade sanctions on Iran by setting up front companies. Again, uh, Ms. Meng is her name, is the one who set those companies up in an effort to get around U.S. sanctions on Iran. So uh, do you think, uh, let me ask, do you think that the use of uh, criminal law, criminal indictments, is it going to actually be an obstacle uh, that prevents a kind of diplomatic solution? Or do you think it's a kind of a good wake-up call? That you know, people's attentions are now focused on some of the things you were talking about that are mostly known to policymakers, specialists, but not to the general public, which is that China has been taking advantage of us and sort of stealing the vital technology that will uh, really be the thing that gives countries adva- the advantage in the future. Yeah, I think I think first of all, it's a wake up call, and I think it's it's again, it's it's like all of these things that we were ignoring for so long with China. I think we have abundant evidence of the risks of, uh, you know, uncritically or or without uh, really um, looking deeply into how to defend ourselves, just accepting Chinese technology. I mean, I think we we know uh, we, we we know how they hack us, and, and we know how they've been doing it for so long. It's part of, it appears to be part of the DNA, quite frankly, of of the state that they're going to be they're going to be doing this, and and they see very much an adversarial relationship uh, in in that sense with the United States. And unfortunately, the 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 feeling of that adversarial adversarial relationship has only grown. Um, you know, most Americans, we don't see these things, right? You don't see the technology that that runs the internet. You don't see the either the the hard uh, the hardware or, quite frankly, the software. And so it's all a little bit esoteric. But I think if you put it in the context of uh, the the essential um, competition that uh, has been going on where a very mercantilist Chinese approach to all trade, quite frankly, but certainly on the technological side, which is to strip away intellectual property to um, to steal trade secrets, but potentially also because of the connections of Huawei to the People's Liberation Army and, and the founder and, and all of these things, that it could act, be actively used to spy on you. Um, 
you know, there are a lot of countries where we, we wouldn't have these concerns because we have no evidence that it's ever been happening. The, the point is that we have a lot of evidence that it's been happening with China. And so I think that the um, the burden of proof is on the Chinese to show that this is not happening. Uh, and obviously, the Justice Department doesn't feel that they've made that case. They they have, as you mentioned, indicted them and the CFO has been arrested. That that was part of the evasion of sanctions. But um the the larger question of the Trump administration um, preventing Huawei from entering into you. Um, it's because we have an, we have a track record of this. Um, it's very, very specialized. And I'm not sure how many lawmakers or policymakers in D.C. fully understand it. I'm not sure how honestly how many of us understand it who aren't working in the technical side of this. But the point is. Um, that we know it's been going on, and so it would be sort of foolish to assume uh, that there's no risk whatsoever. Um, and they certainly seem to have the evidence, uh, at least in the, the limited um, sphere of the indictments that they've brought, that malfeasance has been part of the company's strategy. So this, again, is part of that turning point that I was talking about. It is the new era of how do you figure out, how do you deal with Chinese companies, Chinese companies whose opaque management and ownership structure means we can never be quite sure the connection to the state. Uh, how do American companies that want to invest in China, especially tech companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft and the like, deal with having to have Chinese partners uh, that are that are in some cases well known to be owned by provincial governments? All of these rules are being rewritten. Because uh, the fact is that China did not norm itself. It did. Not, it took advantage of the willingness of the U.S. to bring it to to invest in it and bring it into this global network. Uh, and we didn't do due diligence. Uh, the time for due diligence uh, has come. And and yet again, you have to be careful of overreactions. You can't you can't suddenly have witch hunts and you can't suddenly. Uh, upend or end all U.S. trade with China. That's that's utterly unrealistic. So this is going to be a very, very uncertain era, I think, going forward for the next five years or even beyond. And it has, it has nothing to do with Trump. Uh, I mean, in the sense that it's only because of him. It was happening under the Obama administration slowly, hesitantly, not quickly enough. It would have happened under Hillary Clinton, I think, and it's going to happen under the next president. We're not going back to the old way of doing business. Um, but there's no clear um, roadmap for going forward because what you said is exactly right. We've never faced a challenge like this. We've never been so integrated with a partner that was uh, acting in in such negative ways towards our own interests. I mean, the best example, maybe, I don't know, it's certainly the one that comes to mind and is used a lot, is Britain and Germany before World War One. And you obviously don't want to have that case. I don't think we're going to go to war with China. I think the Thucydides trap arguments uh, and the like are are overstating the case, and and um, they're they're not as applicable historically. Um, but we are in for a very rough ride with China. There is very little trust. There's going to be more competition, more jockeying for influence, more trying to undercut each other, and framing all of that is the recognition that we're in a new era and we've got to figure out what are the rules of that era going to be. Yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. I, I think uh, uh, just two points I'd uh, follow up on. One is uh, I think you're completely right about the stealing of the trade secrets that American policy uh, probably would have proceeded in the same 
general direction under President Clinton or President Trump or even you know, in two years maybe a President Kamala Harris just because of uh, the strategic realities at work here. Um, second is the use of criminal laws. Interesting, as sort of the, uh, my um, lawyer's hat here is I don't think the Chinese fully understand – uh, how dangerous it is to be indicted <laughs> as a corporation. <laughs> like, you know, there are, you know, usually if you're an American corporation, you do everything you can to avoid any kind of criminal charges because that can actually shut down your whole company. Uh, so there are companies that were indicted after the uh, Great Recession in 2008, which no longer exist uh, because they were indicted by the Justice Department because it can lead to things like freezing all assets, seizing. You know, as bar sanctions, prevention from uh, selling goods in the U.S., preventing people from buying things from the U.S. for your company could really end Huawei as a uh, going concern. But I think the Chinese don't really seem to realize how you know what a what a, uh, uh, an aggressive step it was uh, for the Trump administration to turn to the criminal law. Um, and just uh, you know, one uh, last point. I re- I think you're. Again, completely right about this. You know, you're the uh, trained historian. I'm the uh, sort of dilettante historian, but I am struck by these uh, comparisons. Everything, everybody's always comparing everything to the Peloponnesian War and Thucydides, and this idea that well, you have a rising power here, China, and whenever you have a rising power and there's a dominant power here, it's us. You inevitably have war. I, you know, that's. I think that's just sort of facile analogizing, and uh, you know, one thing that's different is just the circumstances now are different. You know, as, as, as you said, and as I said, China, the approach China is just a completely different kind of problem. You know, they're not Sparta. Actually, I guess in this weird analogy, we're Sparta, <laughs> and they're Athens, yeah, which right. is completely off when you think about the cultures and the. You know, if anyone should be Sparta, it should be China, and we're more the Athenian. So I, I just I, I agree with you. I find that Thucydides' trap thing a convenient way to um, a sell books or b appeal to freshman undergraduates, <laughs> but c doesn't really uh, bear on on this one. I think this is much harder problem, as you say, than finding analogies to the past. So we only have time. I mean, the time has flown. We only have time for one last quick uh, topic, Um, but it it also kind of follows on from the Huawei indictments, which is, what about the Chinese use of the criminal law against us? So as you've seen recently, the Chinese have responded to the indictments of Huawei by um, just detaining Canadians, who don't seem to have been doing anything <laughs> other than being Canadian, which itself could be a crime and maybe should be in most parts of the civilized world, but they don't seem to have done it. And then you've also seen these stories coming out of China of uh, the harsh treatment of Westerners uh, who may or may, ha- may not have been violating Chinese law. You know, there are people who've been arrested, for example, recently as um, uh, or accused anyway of being uh, drug dealers uh, or conspiring to bring drugs in and out of China, um, whose families say they had nothing to do with it, who don't seem to be getting much uh, chance of legal representation in a fair trial and are being probably going to be sentenced to death. Uh, so what do you what do you make of that? Do you think that this is just an example of China just deliberately manipulating? their own uh, criminal laws to pressure us in the West? Or do you think they're actually you know, treating Westerners just like they treat their own citizens, which is pretty badly, actually? 
Yeah, this is. Uh, I think it's incredibly worrisome. Uh, just anecdotally, uh, John, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people in the the Asian studies community and the China studies community who are really thinking twice about going to China. Um, I'll yeah. be honest. I won't. I so, won't go. I won't go now. Um, yeah, I, I, you I just would think won't. so. After think, what's been happening. That's right. You know, it's 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 like the old Roach Motel, right? You can check in, but you can't check out. You know, it's it's called these. <laughs> you're, you're, we're dating ourselves that we both get your joke. We are. Kids, <laughs> kids look that up. Um, YouTube it. But, um, you know, it's exit restrictions. So you get let in and then you you are are caught on trying to leave. Um, look, the ability – with the Canadian, first of all, uh, I'm forgetting his name right now. I should have looked that up. But anyway, um, he had already been sentenced. He had contested it, but he had already been sentenced uh, to prison for the drug charges. Well, then they simply retried him and gave him the death penalty, uh, clearly as a political pawn. I mean this is you know, utterly and absolutely – uh, capricious. Oh, and, by the way, the fellow's name is Robert Schellenberg. That's right. Is the right. Uh, guy who's been accused of drug dealing, drug trafficking, and then the uh, the uh, the two guys who were just arrested for being Canadian, <laughs> uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Yes. Yeah. So, um, it, it, as usual, you have prepared well your brief, and I, I appreciate that. So those those are the names of the the poor guys who are being held. Uh, in in China, and it's it's clearly all political. I think Kovrig in particular is well known. Yes. Uh, I think I think he's part of an International Crisis Group, if I remember. But certainly former the, diplomat, former Canadian diplomat. former Canadian diplomat. I've never met him. Uh, I don't think his name is v- vaguely familiar to me. But <laughs> the I, way things are going, we never will get to meet him. Well, that's right. Unless I decide to go travel there, and then we'll, we'll, right. we'll be cellmates. Uh, <laughs> but I think that you know, look, I'm I'm not going to go over, and I, I don't. I think most academics are still going to go over, but I think they're going to think twice about it. Quite frankly, and it's very very concerning. I mean, we're getting into look. So here's the the new par- so forget the Thucydides trap, right? The new paradigm is is that this is the new Cold War, and maybe that's that's the thing we should have you know started off the big the big think question: Are we in a new Cold War with China? Um, I don't think so. Again, because that that misreads the history of yeah, uh, we weren't we weren't doing hundreds of billions of dollars in economic activity with the Soviet Union. Right, and you and you don't have two ideologically opposed blocks uh, that are militarized against each other. You know, I mean, it, in in some worrisome ways, we almost seem to be moving towards that. And so, for example, you know, Eric Schmidt talking about two internet blocks, right? You know, you're gonna have two different internets in the world. So, you uh, look, I get, I get what people are trying to say. Is this a new Cold War? But it is getting worrisomely like the bad days of U.S. Soviet relations, where citizens became pawns. Um, you know, some would argue that the arrest of the Huawei CFO is is that. Um, I don't think so. But, you know, you're going to arrest her because her company is uh, evading sanctions on Iran and you're going to arrest her in a third country and then try to have her sent to the United States. I mean, from the Chinese perspective, this is this is lawfare. Yeah. Um, right. As so, someone who worked in the Justice Department, I am. The, the idea that any one hand of the government would know what the other hand of the government is doing is giving our side a lot more credit than right. it deserves, right? So. Right. Well, you know, they don't. They they certainly don't know that. Um, yeah. But but anyway, you know. But the point is that that this the this is how relations actually can spin out of control. You know, because it's it's not the issue of a of a particular individual. It's it's the the zeitgeist that suddenly flips to say this is an enemy. Right. Yes. They're arresting our people. They're sentencing these people to death and it's an unfair system. Right. Um, I think it's very dangerous for China right now. And I think that China is at risk of really 
um, putting itself in a very isolated spot. Now, for 20 years, we haven't had that. In fact, China has been the darling of the world for 20 years. It's been the economic darling. In some ways, it's been the political darling. Um, the next years are going to be a lot more fraught for China uh, going forward because I think of the the dynamics that are happening internally as 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 Xi Jinping makes clear that he is going to rely – he's going to bring the party back to the forefront of life. Uh, he is going to squash alternative voices, which he has done. He's going to clamp down on civil society. Um, there's a lot of people who are certainly domestic, they're Chinese, and then people, some who are foreign, who are going to be collateral damage, if we can put it that way, right? Um, and so the question of law, I think what you're going to see, if I had to make a prediction, which historians yeah. should never do, <laughs> is that over the next five years and, and maybe 10 years, but certainly the next five years, a lot of the, the bloom is going to come off the Chinese rose. I think it's been off for a while, but you still get – Books that are coming out talking about, you know, the future is Chinese or the future is going to be all about Asia. You know, I wrote an entire book that argued that we were wildly overstating. Yeah, it was a great Asia book. Strength. Tell the tell the listeners the name of the book. I thought it was a great book. Well, thank you. It was, it was called the, the End of the Asian Century. As yeah, opposed it really to, got started. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and right. it started because we've overlooked all of these weaknesses, which are yes. now manifest in our discussions. And that's a lot of what China's reacting to, but there are there are going to be real challenges that it has to navigate. I don't think it's going to navigate them particularly successfully, and that's going to have spillover effect into its foreign affairs, its international relations. I think people are going to become much more skeptical about China going forward, and that and that itself can create a feedback loop. Uh, and so this question of rule of law, this question of pawns, as we used to see back in the Cold War days and, you know, exchanges of spies on bridges, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not saying we're going back to that, but we're actually closer to that than we were five and 10 years ago. And that that itself is reason for pause and why we should probably continue to to have a podcast talking about what's going on in China, what's going on in Asia, what it means for the U.S., couldn't agree more. And unfortunately, we've run out of time. And so I want to thank uh, Misha and I want to thank the listeners uh, for uh, joining us on our introductory podcast. And most importantly, Misha and I, although we get paid to think in a weird way, we could not think of a title for the podcast. So if any of the <laughs> listeners come up with a good name for the podcast, email to me, email to Misha. And if we pick your title, not only will we mention you on our next podcast, we will both take you out to dinner at a great Chinese restaurant in San Francisco. So uh, for Amisha, this is John Yu. And for the Hoover Institution, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you at the next podcast. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.